In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Ian Crane joins me on In Discussion. An ex-oil field executive, he lectures and writes on the geopolitical webs that are being spun, with particular focus on US hegemony and the NWO agenda for control of global resources. Since 2007, he's focused his efforts on raising public awareness of the pernicious attack on the global population in the name of corporate globalization and harmonization, with particular focus on the excesses of Codex Alimentarius. He's also an independent researcher, and his views are expressed in the talks and DVDs that are based entirely upon his personal knowledge and research. Prior to his retirement from the corporate arena, he enjoyed a career of some 25 years in telecommunications and international oil field services, a career that provided the opportunity to live and work in the United Kingdom, continental Europe, the Middle East, and also the United States. Ian Crane joins me today, engaging in the game. Ian Crane, welcome to In Discussion. It's such a pleasure to have you sharing some time today with me. Thanks, David. Appreciate the invitation. Whereabouts are you today, Ian? Back in good old England? Yep, down in the in the southwest of England with a layer of snow on the ground. I heard that it was extremely cold. <laughs> well, I think it can get colder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. It's probably not like the days I remember back in the 60s where you would get very deep snow drifts in the county of Wiltshire. But uh, perhaps it's reversing the trend. Ian... Thank you again for coming on to In Discussion. As you know, and as we've spoken prior to the program, I have been covering uh, various issues, one of them the crisis in the Gulf of Mexico, very alarmed uh, with that situation. We came in on this shortly thereafter, uh, the explosion, which was uh, very sad, and It's not so much looking back on it, Ian, the concerns of what occurred in those five or six months after, but what the ramifications are for the health of people in the future. And we did have a guest on the program during that period who had been involved in the crisis up in Alaska. And she indicated that the long-term effects are extreme. What is your knowledge on this? How do you view this situation? Um, I think you're you're very close to the mark. The reporting is extremely restricted. What what's happening is that uh, people in the Gulf Coast region are seeing reports in their local newspapers, and also reports on their local TV stations, which gives the impression, of course, to the people locally that the concerns and the the problems that are continuing to mount in and around the Gulf Coast region are actually getting out to the wider community. But, of course, they're not, as you rightly say. So unless you actually live probably within about 50 miles or so of the Gulf Coast, then you're not likely to have any real awareness of uh, what's occurring. And you're right, the health issues are increasing on a logarithmic scale, unfortunately. And, of course, we're talking about a very depressed region of the United States, although I wouldn't necessarily have uh, made that observation about Florida perhaps uh, a year or so ago. But with the events um, that have occurred course we're seeing you know the Florida economy absolutely tank but the the health care issues uh, certainly I mean you know we're, we're getting direct reports of clean-up workers that are uh, suffering from acute respiratory problems you know we are aware of the problems and I, and I, you are, I know you are aware of the problems caused by Corexit uh, and contact with Corexit and of course we're also now starting to get increasing reports of uh, fatalities being caused by Vibrio vulnificus, which is the flesh-eating bacteria that yes. seems to be breeding at a phenomenal rate of knots. Which has been occurring for some time. 
You know, Ian, I'm, among other things, a social historian, so I, in many of my programs, I look at ancient civilizations. I cover many issues. I uh, stay in the middle, and my role is one of bridging uh, the establishment with the very conscious community. But there's no doubt in my mind that there are very uh, scary trends here today. And it still amazes me that despite this disaster, which has repercussions, which I don't think anybody will really realize for another 10 years, that the oil drilling still continues, that this engine is unstoppable, despite the fact that this planet is going to shout out to us one of these days coming up in the very near future, I've had enough, I cannot handle this. What is it in your mind and in your work and in your research that still drives what I call as the corporate mansion to continue this ravaging of our planet? Primarily, we're talking about a multidimensional game of Monopoly. And um, I'm sure for anybody who has played Monopoly, they'll be very familiar that the ultimate objective of the game is total ownership, total control of everything on the board. And what we have occurring here, I mean, it's not just the BP disaster, which in my opinion is undoubtedly a population reduction event. But you know, we're seeing it in other areas as well, of course, not least the, uh, the economic arena. But uh, staying, staying with, with BP here, you know, what we're talking about here is, is an inner Kabul, an inner sanctum amongst those who believe that they are the rightful rulers of a global fiefdom who have absolutely no regard whatsoever for humanity. I mean, these, I, I use the term loosely, but these individuals you know, regard themselves as a race apart. Uh, consequently, they regard humanity as nothing more than a subspecies. And, and they tell us what they're doing. I mean, increasingly, they become more and more arrogant in spelling out their agenda. And they take great delight when the vast majority of, uh, of humanity ignores it. And you know, the three most powerful tools that these players have in their armory are apathy, abdication, and willful ignorance. And, and the most powerful tool they have in that armory of those three is abdication, because by definition, abdication means that you know, we know something's going on, but we specifically elect to ignore it and, and basically do nothing. And in the belief system of this inner sanctum, I mean, they believe that when we've been given the information, but then we choose to do nothing about it and just carry on in our consumerist, materialistic microcosm, then we actually give them our power to uh, carry on with their pernicious agenda. Well, this is the question, is it not, that as we move forward here, we're looking for solutions. We have to be a solution-led society. And society as a whole has to take responsibility for this, which is difficult in itself because they're not being provided the information. We are clearly in a world today that is a do-consume world of materialism and it's it's uh, running away and it, this is a reluctance for people to understand the needs of the planet but they continue to avoid those those ideals this is part of the human frailties is it not it's it's the denial of what we have that's so sacred but that we're not prepared to look after but I wonder in finding those solutions, what is the best road to waking up a whole society to the fact that a small minority of people in our world are controlling financially the entire world? How do you do that when at the same time you're compromised in the fact that people are in this do-consume mode? Well, if we stay for the moment within the uh, sort of physical material realm, because I think there's a hell of a lot going on in the esoteric realms as well. But in, in the physical realm, I mean, you know, you're right. It is about society taking responsibility, but society is a collective noun, effectively. Um, and, and so we have to start with individuals. I mean, we basically have to uh, reach out to individuals, which is obviously what we're doing right now through your, uh, your radio show. And, you know, what those of us do in sort of, you know, the public presentations that we make or the articles we write or the videos we make, etc., etc. And 
it's about sowing seeds because in reality, you know, we can't tell people the truth. I mean, that, that, I, that I think is a fundamental difference between our approach and the approach of the mainstream media because the role of the mainstream media is primarily to control the narrative. It's to absolutely tell people what it is that they are supposed to think. It is the mainstream media that effectively creates the orthodox version of reality. Now, our challenge, of course, is to encourage people to scratch beneath that very thin and increasingly becoming thinner veneer and uh, you know, come to their own realization of what's occurring because we certainly have a tremendous advantage over, say, um, a, a situation of 20-odd years ago because I'm not sure for how much longer we might uh, have um, the access that we do via the web and the relevant search engines, but you know, let's make use of it while we have it. And, and it's through this medium that you know, we have to encourage people to take what we share with them, the seeds that we sow, and then you know, we encourage them, obviously, to do their own research. I mean, I always start my presentations by making the observation that I don't expect anybody to take anything that I say at face value. That is not my role at all. It is simply to sow the seeds and encourage them then to take responsibility for, you know, for their own information, for their own views, for their, for their knowledge. Perhaps with all that said, we could draw a line in the sand and then move forward and then come up to date as far as we can in this first program. Because we can use any type of terminology. You can look back over decades, centuries and thousands of years and you can talk about the dark cabal. You can talk about the Anunnaki's. You can talk about all of these secret organizations that have essentially conditioned us. It makes you wonder, though, how far that can continue as a world becomes more enlightened. And I'm not sure that it becomes enlightened by the fact that they are uh, driven down this road of information, and clearly it helps, but more driven down this road because shortly this planet will no doubt say to us, look, or a higher power will say, look, enough. You, you cannot do this to Mother Earth anymore, so we're going to have to uh, come in here and straighten things out. What would your view be on that? Well, I think, um, I mean, like yourself, uh, you know, I don't just look at the uh, exoterica. In, in fact, uh, you know, before I really started to probe into the, the deep recesses of uh, the geopolitical realm, um, I spend a lot of time researching and studying the mythology, the cosmology, the folklore, the traditions of many uh, indigenous peoples around the planet. And of course, one of the things that is absolutely fascinating and, and certainly um, is part of my motivation for doing what I'm doing is that there is a common thread that runs through many of the indigenous um, uh, peoples. And that is that we are at a very, very unique juncture in the evolutionary process of humanity. And, you know, yeah, I mean, many people will be familiar, of course, with the, uh, the Mayan calendar and the fact that the long count, the current long count, comes to a conclusion at 11.11, precisely, universal time, on the December the 21st, uh, 2012. But, I mean, there, whilst not being quite so specific with the, uh, the actual moment of the end of a period, there are many other uh, indigenous cultures that talk about this particular period being like the lifting of the veil um, or the end of time. I mean, in the ancient Egyptian wisdom, they had a ceremony called the raising of the Jed, which is believed to relate to the returning of the earth to a vertical axis, which of course would in fact also uh, equate to the end of time because it would mean an end to the four seasons and humanity not being constrained by having to work within a routine around the, uh, the seasons. And of course the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, very much had that with the flooding of the Nile. So I also uh, produced a presentation about four and a half years ago, which is still available on DVD. It's called The Hidden Agenda. And in that uh, DVD, I, what I looked at was the belief system of those who believe themselves to be the rightful rulers. And I also introduced the reason I believe that these guys are running very, very scared of, well, particularly the year 2012. 
um, and in a subsequent uh, presentation called For Me Once, I actually put forward the hypothesis that they would use the uh, London Olympics of 2012, and more specifically August the 12th in, in 2012, to launch an event that would effectively be their, their, their last card, their final attempt to establish global governance, global domination. And what we're seeing right now is these guys, this inner sanctum, this inner Kabul, accelerating as much as they possibly can their agenda to take total control of the planet, preferably with a greatly reduced number of humans on it. But they don't necessarily, oh, I don't believe they know specifically, they're hedging their bets really, but uh, what they want to do is make sure that they are absolutely in a position of domination by the end of uh, 2012. But they also know, they also know that there is an awakening occurring. And, and let me just refer you to one person that's very, very significant in all this. And this is Obama's mentor, Zbigniew Brzezinski. Because Zbigniew Brzezinski, and of course he's the protege of a guy called Bernard Baruch, and um, uh, that's, a, that's a whole other subject. But Zbigniew Brzezinski, in 1969, wrote a book called Between Two Ages, The Technotronic Era. And it's a fascinating book. It's an extremely prescient book on one hand, or alternatively, it might be the script. And in that book, of course, he's explaining how the elite, the ruling elite, plan to effectively control humanity through a scientific control grid, which, of course, is exactly what we see going on right now. But he made another very important observation, and I'll paraphrase. I don't remember the exact wording of the quote. But basically, he said that the f one of the challenges for Western governments in the coming years will be to keep their people locked into consumerist materialism, preventing them from realizing who they truly are. So here's an observation from a guy you know, who, right alongside Kissinger, is one of the arch strategists of uh, the global agenda, making the observation that you know, humanity is on potentially having an opportunity to um, participate in a, in a wider awakening of consciousness. And yet earlier this year as well, on the 15th of May, in fact, he gave a presentation at the Council on Foreign Relations where he was very specific and he said the biggest obstacle to establishing the one world government is the rapid political awakening of the masses. So here we've got a situation, one man, 40 years apart, critical player in the unfolding agenda, making the observation that they are aware that humanity potentially has the opportunity for a spiritual consciousness awakening and also for a political awakening. And, you know, perhaps the two are, of course, um, very much interlinked. I love the fact that you're devoting this word opportunity to it because I think that that inspires. Potentially, David, I think it's potentially further inspiration here because I am very conscious, as I'm sure you are, that this sort of material that we're talking about here, if people are coming across it for the first time, it's potentially um, you know, very scary and pushes them into a, a place of fear. And if not fear, then certainly anger. And, and there's no question that these are two stages that uh, you know, we've all had to work through as, uh, as we um, uh, find our way through this journey. But let's, let me consider something else because quite a number of years ago when I was looking at Tibetan wisdom, Tibetan, particularly Zen Buddhist uh, Tibetan wisdom, and there's a piece there that resonated with me very much and that is that the greatest contribution that anyone can offer for the soul development of another is to be their enemy. So when we, we reflect on that, when we're all buddy-buddy, when everything's going wonderfully, then you know, we're not really getting too much out of it in terms of a learning experience. It's very pleasant, but basically we're in existing mode. We're not actually learning. When we find ourselves in a situation of conflict, in any way, shape, or form, you know, we're presented with a number of, um, of options, of course. We can walk away from it. We can confront it head on. Um, but, you know, most importantly, you know, we need to take a pace back and look at what it is in terms of our own behavior, our own thought process, our actions, whatever it is that may be contributed to bringing about that conflict situation. And one of the things that I know that's going on right now, and I, I'm sure many of your listeners, when I say this, will nod their heads knowingly, is many, many people now, right throughout the world, are enduring great 
personal trauma in their lives. You know, whether it's relationship trauma, financial trauma, employment trauma, health trauma, and all of these dramas are providing us actually with an opportunity to work through the issue, you know. Um, and of course, if we don't work through it, if we don't find a way through it and we run away from it, then guess what? We're probably you know, <laughs> destined to go through it again. And that is a significant observation is it not because if and certainly in my world and being in my position you talk to an awful lot of people Ian and there are an awful lot of people in my world uh, and certainly in the inquiries that we get in response to these programs who are in dire circumstances and I wonder sometimes in quieter times at night whether that is actually going to be the formula the irony of it I realize but whether that's going to be the formula to bring everybody to this state of absolute consciousness uh, perhaps it is because you know if we extrapolate further on you know where we're going with this then let's consider whilst it seems very very perverse uh, at a superficial level but let's consider the possibility that this inner couple this inner sanctum perpetrating this population reduction agenda this monopolistic agenda seeking total control of everything on the planet up to and including all remaining individuals and they tell us what they're doing because they use words like human resources human resources I mean I hate that term with a vengeance because it, it is so clear I and mean, it's teaching other humans of course just to um, desensitize them desensitize them to the fact that there are people involved here you know in a, uh, many years ago when the term in the corporate world was personnel I mean at least there was some uh, semblance of the fact that you know it was a uh, human interaction human resources is treated as a commodity yeah I think you're right in what you in what you're um, observing here that you know these individuals that are perpetrating this agenda perhaps not on a, a waking consciousness level but at some at some level of soul commitment or whatever they're doing us a massive favor an absolute massive favor because events that are perpetrated like 9-11 like the London bombings like the Madrid bombings the Bali bombings the illegal wars it, what these are doing is they're they're actually triggering the capability for critical thought and without these events, I doubt we'd probably even be having this conversation today because I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for 9-11, which was certainly my line in the sand. Well, let me just review and bear with me here, Ian, because this is very interesting as a first program. You're talking about this evolutionary process. I completely concur with that. In a recent interview with the famous Barbara Marx Hubbard, the futurist, she indicated, and I had come to this conclusion myself, that this evolutionary process had really begun in 1945 with the nuclear bomb in Japan, and that sometimes people will make this statement, well, when is this evolutionary process going to take place? And I'm absolutely convinced that we are now in the rebirth period having traveled all the way from 1945 going back however to indigenous culture because I think that is pivotal in this and you were talking about the Egyptian culture and I had the uh, great uh, honor of talking to Laird Scanton about the Dogen culture which was very much based around symbolism and actually a culture that can a civilization that continues today and in that, I talk about this governance, and this is a word that you just used. And I think that this governance is not a governance that needs to come in here for the traditional platforms that we have in place, because I'm really convinced at this stage that the, both the financial system, the political system, and the religious organization can no longer continue. And I think it's going to uh, be arrested very quickly in short order here. So this governance, have you given any consideration that perhaps it's the governance that, as in the Dogen culture, they, they were a culture that were taught by a higher power, the Egyptians state this as well. They were simply the students. Uh, and, and looking at it that way, do you think perhaps that it's the indigenous culture who could be handed this governance 
to continue with literally going back to the planet in areas where they're still surviving and us following their lead or at least helping them to rediscover what this planet is all about and what we have to do by shutting off the oil, shutting off all of these hundreds of years of pollution of energies that are polluting the world. Do you think possibly we should be looking at the indigenous cultures with m more focus now? For sure. Uh, there's no question about that. But uh, once again, it's for people to come to their own realization. It, it's not going to you know, happen overnight, potentially. But you know, th there is another side to this. In fact, I spent most of June of this year in the high Andes with the Quero people, specifically with the Laker. And it was a trip that I'd actually arranged back in, in last October, uh, because although I'd read a lot of material on the, the Quero wisdom, and um, you know, the uh, the Quero prophecy. I, I actually wanted to go and spend some time with these people and you know get it straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. It, it was really quite remarkable how the whole thing worked out because although I was part of a group, um, I didn't know how I was going to actually spend some sort of quality time, you know, one on one or whatever. Especially as I don't speak Quero and I didn't expect them to speak English. But I needn't have worried because on my first night in Peru, I ended up breaking my ankle. <laughs> um, which uh, somewhat sort of limited my participation in the group activities but it didn't stop me too much I mean I got some crutches and you know the first day that we were up in the Andes and we were staying at a place called Pizac and we went up into the mountains and uh, there was going to be uh, various long walks into the mountains to meet with uh, the Quero but I made it about 800 meters from uh, the coach that took us up into the uh, into the mountains and then I just found a, a wonderful spot quiet spot and sort of enjoyed the tranquility for an hour and then one of the uh, the Quero people came along and just sat along with sat down with me and uh, it, it was great you know I got my one-on-one -on -one, but of course we couldn't communicate because we didn't have a common language but uh, about an hour or so later a second member of their group came along still same problem but then a while later a third member of the group came along and this was a female member and she was the youngest member of the uh, the Quero uh, that was working with us and so I sat down with three of them and this happened uh, for a few days so I got the opportunity to to uh, really um, tap into to their knowledge and I mean I'm gonna paraphrase because you know I spent quite a lot of time with these guys but what their their observation is that you know this awakening process is about to accelerate on a on a um, uh, way beyond the logarithmic scale, even, and that uh, those people who are aware that things are not quite right, um, we are simply the advanced party, and uh, in their opinion, our our role is to provide the basis and and the support network for those people who are going to have their well, what they describe almost uh, as a, like a, a, a Damascus moment. So I, I asked them what it was that was actually going to trigger this mass awakening. And basically they said it's the solar storms that are going to kick in around about uh, October of next year. And of course, if you look at the NASA website, the solar storms are scheduled to, to the solar activity is scheduled to go sort of off the scale. So this is where there has been talk in private areas that NASA is actually expecting satellites to be brought down next year because exactly. of solar flares, which is well, a Well, they're talking about concern. more than that. They're talking about electrical grids, computer networks, which would take out all the banking systems. I mean, some have even suggested that it could actually impact on the, the capability of the internal combustion engine being able to function. So it could fundamentally change the whole way in which our society is currently structured. You know, our infrastructure may effectively disappear, you know, in the proverbial heartbeat. So, you know, the Quero make the observation that whilst the solar storms may do this, uh, well, I'll use the term damage, but of course it might actually be quite the opposite of that. Um, whilst it may wipe out our infrastructure, what it would actually also do is trigger what we have been told is junk DNA and it will create this opportunity for us to completely, completely revise the way in which we perceive our reality. Effectively, it will give us an opportunity to move on to the next level of the game, change the way in which we relate to the planet and the way in which we relate to each other. This is very interesting because this brings us up to date. 
in how we can help people, Ian. You know, I looked recently and I rarely watch television, uh, probably twice in the last two or three years, and I came across uh, Jesse Ventura's latest film about the boxes uh, down in the southeast of America and what we could expect and what they're trying to do. And I have to say that I think it's very dangerous because as much as people are consumed by materialism, and way away from any uh, perspective of consciousness, is there not a responsibility here to ensure that somehow this transition is gentle for them? Otherwise, the mass genocide uh, that, that we consider here could be real and probably for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. But, I mean, everything that we're talking about is very much interlinked because there's two things that, uh, that the Quero in particular share. But, I mean, what is interesting for me, as I'm sure you realize, is that what the Quero are sharing is not unique. You know, we can find very, very similar uh, advice, guidance, counsel from the Maori of, uh, of New Zealand from the descendants of the Maya in Central America, from the Hopi, etc., etc. So, once again, we're seeing a, a, a common thread, if you like, through the indigenous peoples. But one of the things that absolutely resonates with me in the, what the Quero have to say, because I asked them this, observa uh, this question, I said, you know, will, will this opportunity, this opportunity to sort of move to the next level of consciousness, will this be there for everybody? And uh, these, these guys, by the way, had a wonderful sense of humor. I mean, they spent a lot of time just laughing. And they also, they knew one English word which tended to be used quite a lot, and that word was idiot. <laughs> and uh, um, I must confess that they used that quite a lot on me. That's brave of you to say that, Ian. Days. Um, <laughs> but in a pleasant sort of way. But they make the observation that the actual version of reality that will emerge after this awakening, this mass awakening, is still being written. And, and they believe that there are two things that you know, we have to do to determine the eventual outcome, or contribute at least to determining the eventual outcome. And they make the observation that the first thing that uh, we must focus on is awakening to what is happening around us and then find a way, however you know, that may be, Every one of us has different skills, you know, different capabilities, different resources. We must find a way to contribute as much as we possibly can to physically bringing about the changes that we want to see. Now, that, Ian, means that there are a couple of opponents here. There's the opponent of uh, what we talk about as this financial mechanism, this minority who is controlling the world, who is basically taking us down a road of oblivion and we're seeing this as a purposeful ideal or objective and then on the other side of that when we talk about the Mayans or the the Dogon civilization or the Egyptians you can look way back we're also talking about something that is evolutionary in nature so we we have two prongs to this that we have to look at and that we have to educate people with there's almost two battling rams that are coming towards us across a field from different directions and we have to find a way to traverse through both of them to make sure that we get to the other side where we do have a planet that remains in good order and some type of community where people can still be safe can have some sort of life outside of the life that we have today in this uh, materialistic world. Well, absolutely. And I mean, I think this is really what they're alluding to when they talk about, you know, making the contribution on the physical realm. Because, you know, like I said, every one of us has different skills, different interests, different capabilities, different focuses. You know, so that's why it's so important that you know, people turn inwards and look at what it is that they feel they can do to maximize the contribution to trying to make the change on the physical realm because obviously it's multi-pronged you know there's there's no panacea here we have to and of course we have the capabilities collectively we have to address every facet of this and it is about certainly raising awareness and encouraging people to educate themselves and providing them obviously with the support in that process but the, the other point that I want to make here David is that the Quero and along with many other um, indigenous peoples of course also make the observation that just focusing on the physical 
isn't enough. Um, we spent a lot of time debating the, the uh, terminology, but basically they say we have to dream our future. I mean, I think that you know what I came away with from Peru was the understanding that you know, sure, we we have to visualize. We must visualize the future that we want to see, and if we focus on on that as well, then what we find is that actually in visualizing the type of future that we want to see, it actually helps because it provides us with opportunity within the physical realm and what we'll find is perhaps things unfolding in front of us and I could give you a few examples of this. It, we find a few things uh, unfolding in front of us which enable us to actually make even more of a contribution on the physical realm. But the key point that the, the, the Quero uh, are making is that we have to do both. It's not enough just to focus on the physical and it's not enough just to um, reflect, pontificate, meditate, visualize, dream, whatever. That's almost an abdication. We have to get involved, and we, you know, both on the physical realm and on the, uh, the etheric realm. This is where my great friend Professor Bill Tiller, Klaus Heinemann and others talk about this, even my dear friend Susie Anthony, who we both know. We talk about intention. We talk about a human now, and I strongly believe this in my own life, that your intention and what you feel and what you think is very important and has to receive much discipline now. I think, Ian, that we have every opportunity to get this right. But in all of us, I think we have to walk the talk. We have to think positively. We have to have the solutions. Because I think that when you talk about spiritual, and there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, but I, I truly believe that this is a spiritual human being that's going to go to a different plane of being, a much different type of consciousness, which can be seen by some think tanks as being an absurd suggestion. But, you know, it's not. Because if you're going to go through a world where the financial system the political system, the religious system cannot continue and there is no way we can see in clear evidence that it's not going to. And then on top of that you may have more natural disasters. And then on top of that you are going to have these concerns of uh, solar flares and all of these other universally problematic coming into our, into our orbit. Then that in itself is going to change the consciousness of us as human beings. And certainly when you use this word acceleration, there's no doubt in my mind. And seeing the way that things are traveling today, that everything is accelerating towards a point here. And unlike past civilizations, implosions thereof, whether it's the Roman Empire or the Mayan or anything else, this one is very quick, very fast-paced. Um, and getting faster, you know, the, of that there's no doubt. I mean, if we extrapolate what's, what's occurring on the physical realm, uh, and the great tragedy, of course, is that uh, uh, we can see and we know for ourselves that it is, it is going through the personal trauma on the microcosmic level that you know, accelerates our learning. And that trauma is going to accelerate on a macro basis because what we're seeing here is an agenda that is being up to the phenomenal rate to bring humanity into abject economic slavery. I mean, you're, you're, we're seeing this obviously throughout uh, North America, certainly throughout Europe. I've just come back from uh, touring uh, Ireland with Jim Core, where we were giving a series of talks on the financial meltdown and you know, on, the, on the fact that effectively Ireland has once again become a colony, this time to the EU rather than uh, the UK. But Ireland is just simply um, um, an illustration, uh, an example of what is going to be occurring right throughout the world. And this, hopefully, as this, uh, this occurs, it's not going to be pleasant for sure, but as it occurs, it is going to encourage people to stop and go, hang on a goddamn second, what the hell is going on here? Something ain't quite right. And hopefully that will actually trigger you know, the individuals to start their own research to start their own study and come to their own realization because ultimately ultimately and i think this is this is something that's uh, very important there are various sort of philosophies and anybody who tells you of course that they know exactly what's going to occur in the coming years and decades and centuries or whatever is uh, is delusional you know the reality is i, th I think i take the input from 
the Quero, and that is that the script is still being written. And it is very much up to us to participate in the writing of that script. And, you know, they, they also make the observation that, you know, perhaps not everybody, although our challenge is to try and bring through as many as possible, but not everybody is going to be able to, uh, to make the transition. Because what may occur may be so far beyond their bounds of reference that they just won't be able to uh, to embrace the experience. Is that because, Ian, they are in a lifestyle that is uh, predicated upon money? Yes, basically. They've got too much invested, um, and I emphasize that. You know, they feel they've got too much invested. In fact, one of the um, you know, more amusing conversations that I had with Isquero in, in, the, in the latter days that I was with them, you know, when I said, you know, will everybody have the opportunity to make this, uh, this transition? And after Thelma had translated the question, these two guys just sat and laughed for about you know, five minutes or so, sharing various inside jokes. And, and, of course, I kept hearing the word idiot uh, mentioned. And then I said to them, you know, so what, what is it that you find so funny? And they said, well, you know, maybe everybody does have the opportunity. But some people, even though the opportunity is presented to them and they can see it, they may say, hang on a second. I've just got to go back and get my phone or my wallet or my computer or, or whatever. And they may have missed the opportunity now i mean obviously that was allegorical i mean in terms of the illustration but i mean the point is well taken ultimately you know we probably don't actually make the decision consciously as to if we take that that step forward to the next level i think that that decision is probably based upon what is in our heart at uh, uh, you know the the magic moment and i just wanted to pick up on something you said there because i think it's important you i mean you uh, not intentionally, but you made the observation about um, societies imploding and you talked about the Roman and the Mayan. Well, I think those two societies are two very, very different um, examples because uh, I, I was actually, ironically, I was um, in Central America for about six months prior to 9-11 researching Mayan mythology and Mayan cosmology. And I spent a couple of weeks working with a group of archaeologists in San Ignacio in the old Mayan caves, which are part of the, the former Tikal Empire. And having worked with these guys for about a couple of weeks, there was about six or so young postgraduate archaeologists, their professor, and the professor's mentor, who was certainly in his 70s. And on the last day that I was with them, um, we, we were in the bar, and, and I asked them to uh, share with me their thoughts and I said, never to be specifically mentioned elsewhere, but what are your real thoughts on what happened to the Maya somewhere around about the uh, you know, beginning of the 10th century or so? And, of course, the, the postgraduate students sort of came up with the standard orthodoxy of, well, you know, quite possibly uh, drought, which led to famine, and people just migrated away, etc. But when we got round to the older professor, the, uh, the guy in his 70s or so, uh, he leaned back and he said, so, Ian, your question was, where how did the Mayan go? He said, what makes you think they went anywhere? He said, let's consider the possibility, you know, that they were a society that had an access in ways that we can actually only begin to speculate on. But they had access to a knowledge, to a wisdom, and they, we know that they were pretty much self-contained and uh, probably um, uh, unadulterated by too much input from other societies. So consider the possibility that they had the opportunity to evolve spiritually, independently. And you're and talking, you're, point, you're, and you're talking about a different dimension here. Well, that's what he was alluding to. That, you know, he said, consider the point that they reached collectively. They reached a point where they were able to migrate into another dimension. So he said, consider the possibility that they're actually right here amongst us right now. They are simply outside of our you know, five senses bandwidth. And, and, I, and I said, so that's a, that's a wonderful observation, sir. I said, so when do you write a paper on that? And he leaned back, took another draft of scotch, and he said, you know what, Ian? He said, I'd really like to be drawing my pension this time next year. And, of course, that led us on to the whole debate then about the way in which um, orthodox uh, uh, science is effectively controlled via the peer group review process. And that, I suspect, will be our next program, Ian, because I was going to go back to the Teslas back to the scientists, back to the Dr. Wygans who took down the tobacco industry. It goes on and on and on and on. 
The question in my mind as we close towards the end of this program today is in my world I do everything I can to walk my talk. I believe in full integrity. I believe that everybody has to walk this. The question is ultimately what is the solution now? What is it that is going to enable us to rescue Mother Earth? to rescue the majority of the population, but do this without the current systems in place and do it without some type of mass hysteria that could evolve if we took this road too deeply in talking about the one world order scenario or anything else that the dark cabal could do to us. What do you think it is for uh, commentators, for, for people who do have this uh, wonderful opportunity of being able to talk to people now? What is it that we need to do? Encourage people to take responsibility for their own knowledge, their own awareness. I mean, we, we have to absolutely move away from trying to control any kind of narrative. I mean, any one of us who gives any indication that you know, we think we might absolutely know what's going to occur or know what the outcome of this is, then we're not walking our talk. This is, this is very much for each individual to come to their own realization. You know, this is not about collective group thought. This is about the individual taking responsibility. And then once, once we have come through that process, then, then we start to move into the next phase of the game, which is what I refer to as collective individualism. You know, which, which means that you know, we don't need to be part of a group, we don't need to be part of a society, we don't need to be part of a movement. You know, we naturally move and migrate towards you know, people that, uh, that are thinking along you know, similar lines here. And it is increasing at a phenomenal rate. And this is wonderful because it means that as people you know, start to become aware of the, the deeper reality, you know, whereas 15, 20 years ago even, they would probably, um, because they couldn't find anybody who they could talk to, would probably end up going down to their local doctor and being prescribed a whole bunch of medication. Well, this is where I talk about the 60s, Ian, of course. I, I always refer to the 60s as an incredible generation, but one that knew how to destroy the building, but they didn't have the uh, availability, the capability, or the inspiration to actually rebuild it. And possibly right. now we right. do have that. And that was very much the advance party, of course. You know the, um, you know the likes of uh, Stanislav Grof, Ram Dass, and you know all, all, those, all that crowd <laughs> in in the sixties. I mean, they were very much the advance party, the advance advance party. And um, you know, we we also have to reach the point where we achieve this level of awareness without the artificial catalyst. You know, uh, because uh, if we are reliant on artificial catalysts, then it ain't going to happen. This, this has to be something that, you know, we achieve organically. And, and I believe that, you know, it, it is going to, uh, to occur. I think that we, we just have to focus on doing as much as we can without having a specific existential commitment to a particular outcome. Because I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, this is very much an evolving script and quite possibly the outcome is actually way beyond the bounds of our comprehension at this juncture. We, in the last couple of minutes of the program, I was going to mention that we talk about the polarities. Uh, we're talking spiritually. We're talking about the, the dark and, the, and the, the light. It seems to me, certainly in my world, Ian, as, as staying as, uh, as a calm, pragmatic source of information, as an educator, that we need to forgive our enemies, our allies, and help each other in this a huge amount of information that we're gathering here and it is very clear and there's there is no doubt that there are a lot of very dark uh, things happening under the surface here but that we have to really embrace everybody in order to find a solution for everybody at this stage i think it goes way beyond forgiveness i actually admire and respect very much respect you know what those alternate forces i mean you know we again we're falling into perhaps um unfortunate paradigms of dark and light etc etc you know for every force there's a counterforce and that counterforce right now is making a massive 
contribution to the awakening process and and we absolutely must acknowledge that and and so you know we absolutely agree with you we do what we do without any anger you know without without any sort of um, you know vilification and and just recognize that the role that these forces are playing and also i mean let's also acknowledge by the way that uh, you know the dark forces to use your terminology don't have any tools that are not available to us you know the tools are out there these are universal tools that are available to everybody what it really comes down to is how we elect to use those tools Ian Crane, it's been a wonderful uh, conversation, this first of what I'm sure will be many programs. I wish we could continue today, but we will move forward into our next program. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so very much. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this program. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at the official website, davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning. Good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Com.